I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Just to remind you, what Jesus is doing here in this Sermon on the Mount is he is engaging in the spiritual formation of his disciples. What does it mean? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And so what Jesus is unfolding for us here uh, in, in this sermon is what we need in order to have our moral imaginations formed for his kingdom. And so that we might engage in the practices that lead to Christian flourishing. And we need this because every one of us come into this space today having gone through a week and having gone through a life of having your moral imaginations formed and shaped by anything and everything other than the Word of God. And as we begin this section of the Sermon on the Mount, this includes even having been those who have heard the Bible taught. Because sometimes the way the Bible has been taught has been wrong. And it needs correction. And so in this portion of the sermon, Jesus begins this process of moving from sharing with us the virtues and the values of the kingdom and the calling we have to embody those virtues and values as salt and as light to moving into giving some very important corrections to false teaching, false practices, false ideas about what it means to be a part of God's people. <clears throat> I'm going to read from 21 to 26, and then I'm going to read from several other verses to help set the context of what we'll be talking about this morning. You have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to, to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny, penalty, the, the last penny. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you. Well, let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing that we might hear what Jesus says to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have not left us in the darkness. You have not left us without a light. And you have not called us to a path that is not illumined. But you have granted to us in what you have revealed of yourself to us. Everything that is needed for us to follow you, to trust you, to embrace you by faith, to embody you through our attitudes, our actions, and our words, and to extend your goodness, truth, and beauty throughout history and throughout the world. And so help us this morning to hear and to be willing to let your spirit take your word and sift our hearts that we may be further sanctified as your people. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The Children's Catechism, question 51, asks, How does God sanctify you? Well, God makes me more and more holy in heart and conduct. Such a simple answer that in a very concise, in a very helpful way, sums up one of the deepest mysteries that can be imagined. That the God of the universe, who is holy, who is who is the very embodiment of what it means to be good, to be righteous, to be just, to be completely and and totally devoted to himself in glorifying himself and enjoying himself within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And what this God is doing is he decided that he would make a people and draw that people into participating with him in what he is doing as he glorifies himself and enjoys himself. 
We are given that amazing privilege to participate in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. This is a mystery that should blow us away. It should never become something that we are comfortable with. It should always be something that strikes us with awe. How does God sanctify you? Well, He makes you more and more holy in heart and conduct. What the people of God throughout history have always needed is this constant reminder that the calling of God has on his covenant people is that he is not simply offering a a ticket to heaven. Punch your card by praying the prayer and then just kind of try to look religious until the end. What God is calling us to is to become better reflections of who he is. And because of our sin, this is something that requires time. It is something that happens through, through the days and through the months and through the years in which we are following God in Jesus Christ until, as Jesus says, that when he returns, he won't lose any of us but he will raise us up, draw us into that final glory that has been promised to us and secured by him, where we will, as the Apostle John says, we will see him and we will be made like him. We will one day be righteous. Not just counted righteous, as the doctrine of justification gives us comfort and confidence. Not just becoming righteous, as the doctrine of sanctification talks about, but actually being righteous. Participating in the glorification of Jesus Christ forever. Within this process, you and I need to grow in our holiness. And you can actually grow in your holiness. And what Jesus is doing here, as he calls his people to a renewed holiness, he has told us very clearly to be a citizen of my kingdom. Your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. If you're going to be a citizen of my kingdom, it will not come about by minimizing the Old Testament. Now I know, it's like, hold up, hold up. The scribes and Pharisees, they were the ones known for the Scriptures. They were known for the Scriptures. They were known for their take on the Scriptures. And their take in what they had been doing with the Old Testament scriptures, as we noted weeks ago, is that they minimized the requirements of the Old Testament. 
They minimized the requirements so that it could look like they were keeping more and more of the law. But the law was not given in order to help us figure out how righteous I can be through the keeping of the law. The law was given to point us to our absolute need for a righteousness that comes from outside of us. And the minimization of the law was creating problems for God's people. They also, in the minimization of the law, they turned the law in focusing on what they considered to be concrete and external. What they did was they just decided to ignore the parts of the law that are not easily measurable, that are not easily seen. To put it another way, what the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees had been doing for generations was contradicting the instructions of Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4 encapsulates for us in a very concise way a very concise area that the that the the truth of God is to be a lived truth lived truth is what we call wisdom and wisdom does not come about from simply checking off the boxes did i tithe my cumin yep boom i can check that off i'm righteous Were you generous in giving to someone who doesn't have any human? Well, don't bother me with that. You can't show me that explicitly, so, you know, don't bother me with that. I can check the box that I did the tithing of the human. Or, as Jesus gets into here, is I've never murdered anyone. I've never killed somebody. There is no one that you can point to that is dead and no longer alive because of something that I did. You can't even point to someone who's no no longer alive because of something that I failed to do. So, have I kept the, the commandment, thou shalt not kill? You better believe it. Check that one off. Now, what's the problem here? The problem is throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book, the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God were called to circumcise their hearts. And in Proverbs 4, we are told that the truth of God, as it is a lived truth in wisdom, doesn't come about by simply checking off certain Boxes with regards to external things that you have done or not done. But wisdom is something that seeps into the heart. And the heart will either reflect the wisdom of the world which we are reminded is darkness, is blindness, 
that the wisdom of the world is the manifestation of violence? Or we let the truth of God so seep into our hearts that that not just external behaviors can be checked off of a list, but our actual attitudes start to reflect more and more the attitude of Christ. What Jesus is doing here is he is correcting a very needful corrections. He is providing very important corrections to false interpretations and applications that had led to the people of God living foolishly, that had led the people of God to reflect more the nations than to reflect their God. How easy would it be as a scribe or Pharisee to live while you're living under the thumb of Roman power? How easy would it be to say, I've never killed anybody? But how easy would it be to say that I don't hate the Romans? Mm. Mm. All right. You just went from preaching to meddling. How easy is it to say that maybe I've never directly been a jerk to to my neighbor or to my coworker who is living in obvious sin? But while at the same time in your heart being angry with them. This month is Pride Month. Oof. Jesus says that his truth is not simply about the externals, but it is about the internal and the external coming together in such a way that our attitudes and actions are revealing the righteousness of God, are revealing the holiness of God as we grow more and more holy in our, do you know it yet? In our heart and conduct. Jesus here, as he provides these very important corrections, it needs to be noted here because there seems to be some confusion among commentators. Jesus is not simply providing a correction by by saying, well, what the Pharisees have been teaching is is they've minimized the word. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the Old Testament and I'm going to raise it up a level to show you just, you know, how serious it should be. He is not doing that. 
He's not providing a new interpretation. He is not providing new applications. What he is doing is saying, here is what my father always intended with what he said. My father has always intended in the external and the internal being renewed after his image. And so Jesus here, as he provides these corrections, what he is saying is, here's what the Old Testament is saying. Here's what the Old Testament means. Here's what the Old Testament requires. And as he has just said back in 17 through 21, I haven't come to to reduce the law. I haven't come to take away from the law. I have come to fulfill it in every jot and tittle. And so you and I live at a time where maybe we don't live under the misunderstanding and the bad applications of Talmudic Judaism. But we certainly live in a day and a time in which interpretation and application of the word of God can become corrupted or can become altered even just slightly to the point that it becomes easy for the church to divorce the internal from the external. It becomes very easy to think in terms of, well, my Christian life, my obedience to God, my, 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 my devotion to the Lord, I, I may not outwardly, you know, be the most holy person or, you know, I'm not some stick in the mud and, you know, I'm, I might, you know, indulge and engage in some things outwardly, but my heart, my heart's, my heart's given to the Lord. Or we have a situation in which someone can say, well, why are you questioning my heart? Look at what I have done here and done there and done here and done there. It's really easy to divorce the two from one another. And throughout the history of the church, this has happened. More than that, when that has happened, a lot of times it has happened because there has become a monopoly on God's truth. This is what Jesus is addressing in the first century, the monopoly of of what the the understanding and interpretations and applications of the Old Testament as it was being filtered through the professional theologians who had a corner on the scriptures, and the commentators. At the time in which Jesus was preaching the sermon, the average individual did not have direct access to the Old Testament. The common average individual did not have access to the, uh, the history of interpretation by the Jewish scholars. The average individual was at the whim of whatever leadership they were under. And if the leadership has gotten off, if they have a monopoly on the information, then you can see what happens. In the Reformation, this is what our our fathers were were dealing with, where throughout the Middle Ages, the, the truth of Scripture had become professionalized, and it had become monopolized by by scholars. 
To the point that the scriptures themselves in the Western tradition were only available in Latin. The, and, and, and so obviously not only does the common everyday person not know Latin and, and isn't rich enough to actually have access to a copy of the Bible, most of the priests by the time of the Reformation didn't know Latin. A lot of times there were actors or there were scholars who knew Latin that were brought in to say the Latin because even the priests didn't have access to it. And with the Reformation, one of the, one of the key things that took place was this understanding that we need to get Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit, as the Spirit works through the Word of God, we need to get people directly connected to God through his scriptures. And one of the things that was required at that time was for them to say, well, you've heard it said that you can buy your way into heaven. But Jesus has said, He who believes in me has eternal life. This is why, by the way, not just with regard to Reformation studies, but with regards to missions today, why it is so vital and important that the word of God is getting translated into the different languages around the world so that people can have direct access to, to the word of God in a language that they themselves understand. And this is why in in that work of of missions, we we want to be supporting and advocating for Bible translation and for good Bible translation. Now, the problem here with what Jesus is correcting is not that there's something wrong with tradition. What he is saying is, Bad tradition creates problems. And so as we advocate for the translation of Scripture so that people can interact with the Word of God, we also want to be translating good materials that will help people understand the Scripture. There's not a problem with reading commentaries. There's not a problem with there being traditions in the church. The problem crops up when the traditions are not based on Scripture, but when those traditions become based on the, most of the time historically, good intentions of certain people. And we all know where good intentions can lead us. And so the problem here isn't tradition. The problem isn't that there are interpretations and applications that are known. The problem is that they are incorrect. They are wrong. And they are leading the people of God away from the sanctification of becoming more and more holy in heart and conduct. And it has reduced sanctification to conduct. And emotionally, what we know, I know, I just used the word emotions in a Presbyterian church. Emotionally, we know that at a time in which Jesus is saying this, the overwhelming average individual Jewish person living in, in Judea at this time, they hated Rome to the point that there were constant rebellions 
to where just a generation after this sermon, Rome would destroy the temple because of the rebelliousness of the Judean people who had allowed their hearts to be captured by hate rather than what God had called them to circumscribe their hearts to, to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. So notice here, the problem isn't tradition. The problem is bad tradition. And even within the Reformed faith, we need to recognize that we swim in an historical understanding of what Scripture teaches. That we are not those who are on our own trying to uh, directly interpret and apply the Scriptures only with regards to our own experience or with regards to our own setting in life, but that we read the church fathers. We read throughout history how people have interacted with the Scripture as we swim in those waters as those who are part of the historic people of God and who are not newcomers who come onto the scene in our own individual areas and and are able to speak authoritative for what God's truth to us means. It's what is God's truth through the ages. And so the problem here isn't tradition, it's It's tradition that has interpretations and applications that lead the people of God away from his truth, goodness, and beauty instead of leading them deeper into it. And so for the rest of this chapter, as we get into these specific corrections that Jesus is going to provide, keep these fundamental principles in mind as they will play themselves out with each specific. And that is first, as Jesus interprets the scripture and applies the scripture for us, keep in mind that there is to be a congruence between the immaterial self and the material self. That what is going on on the inside and what is going on on the outside are supposed to be held together and becoming more and more formed in the image of Jesus Christ. Following Jesus Christ is not about, well, I'll just focus on the external. I'll just focus on what I do, and I won't worry about my attitudes or my words. I'll confess the truth. I can recite the Apostles' Creed. I can tell you the answers to catechism questions. But don't expect me to be loving. Or when I'm not loving, just remember, well, that's just my attitude. That's just a personality problem. It's not actual sin. What Jesus is calling to is the internal and the external, the immaterial and the material part of the self are both called to be, uh, to be constrained by Scripture so that our attitudes, our actions, and our words are all working together to reflect God's truth, God's beauty, and God's goodness. 
And note here, just as even as Proverbs 4 says, Jesus reminds us that one of the best ways to measure this within yourself is in how you speak. The words that you use will show where your heart is. And we're going to address that more next time, Lord willing. But in this congruence of the internal and the external, keep in mind that our words are what hold both of these things together. And so obedience is not merely about outward behavior, but it is about the devotion of the whole self. Obedience is not an end in itself, but it is a means of devotion to God. What is our end in the shorter catechism? Question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? To Wow, that was lackluster. All right, so you, everyone needs to come to the memorization this summer. No, I'm just joking. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And our obedience is a means of that devotion to him, that glorification of him, and that enjoyment of him. What we are not living for is having checked the box. Well, I did this or I didn't do that today. The law is a means by which we understand who God is, what Jesus has accomplished for us, what we will be in the heavenly places, and what I look to Christ through his help and grace to try to grow more and more into in my heart and conduct on a daily basis. Obedience is not an end in itself. Obedience is a means by which we devote ourselves to God, to his glory, and to the enjoyment of him. Obedience, by the way, here, note, is not simply about what you don't do. It's not simply about don't kill. It's about loving. It's not simply don't kill your neighbor. It's about loving your neighbor. It's not just the negative, but it includes the positive. The divines in the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, they get this as they work through the Ten Commandments. Every commandment is dealt with from the perspective of what does this this commandment forbid, the negative? What does it require, the positive? And so Christian discipleship, as Jesus is unfolding these fundamental principles for us, it's about not minimizing the word of God, not making it more doable, not making it easier, not making it more comfortable, not, not dealing with it in a way that it doesn't require faith from me. What Jesus is unfolding for us is that every aspect of our lives as his disciples is contingent on his grace and his empowering presence to us, in which the internal and external are being held together so that what is true on the outside is also true on the inside, and what is true on the inside is also true 
on the outside. This embodied life, you might say. This embodied discipleship, you might say, is a sacramental discipleship. And so even now, as the Lord is about to invite us to his table this morning, what he is providing to us in this sign and seal is nothing less than that his grace and the work of Jesus Christ is not just for external things, but as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup and we take these things inside of us, it is a declaration to us that God's work is both for the internal and the external as he is holding both together and as he is making us more and more holy in both our heart and our conduct. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us in Christ, for his perfect faithfulness to you, to his devotion to you, which led him to love you with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and led him to love his neighbor as himself. And oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be the objects of his love and to be the recipients of his love. And so help us as your people to spend time in your word, not merely to check off a box that we read our Bible today, but to listen to you speak to us as Jesus is still saying to us, here is what I say to you. Help us to commune with you through your word, that your word indeed would become a lived reality within us and not just a set of doctrinal principles or not just a confession of faith that that we can recite, but that it would truly be the life-giving force that is reshaping the moral imagination of your people that we might engage in the practices of Christian flourishing. Father, do this in us so that through us you might indeed use us to show forth the life of Jesus Christ to those who are in darkness to show forth to those who are on the dark path to destruction that there is a better way, that there is a greater reality. And so use our sanctification within us, Lord, not merely to to help us grow in your grace, but to form and shape us as your witnesses, that we might take the bread and the cup of Jesus Christ to those who are eating the bread of violence and drinking the cup of evil. Father, bless us, we pray, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.